Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for 16 clinical trials. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Earlier this week, the Trump administration announced it was ending the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, program. The program was instituted by former President Obama in 2012 as a stopgap to protect immigrants who were brought into the country illegally as children from being deported. Critics argued that it was unconstitutionally installed via executive order, and others felt it amounted to an amnesty program. DACA allowed nearly 800,000 young people to attend school and work legally without fear of deportation. Joining us in the studio to discuss the ramifications of terminating the DACA program are Carrie Carranza, legal immigration counselor and program advocate with Church World Services in Lancaster. Ms. Carranza, welcome to the program. Thank you. Also joining us is Carlos Adolfo Gonzalez, a DACA participant and an advocacy coordinator with the Pennsylvania Immigration and Citizenship Coalition. Mr. Gonzalez, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here to humanize this issue. And that's exactly what we're looking for you to do. And joining us also, and she's been with us before, Jill Family is a Widener University Commonwealth Law Professor of Law and Government specializing in immigrant and DACA law. Professor Family, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Carlos Adolfo Gonzalez, I want to start with you, and I'm not going to ask you to tell your story right off the bat but you did come to this country to the United States uh, at the age of 11 with your mother from the Dominican Republic and we'll talk a little bit more about that but I wanted to start off by just getting your thoughts on the announcement this week that the DACA program may end your thoughts on that um, so we knew that the DACA program was probably not gonna last all four years based on the campaign promise but to rescind the order before we had a permanent solution to this issue, uh, I thought it was very responsible and um, really ignores the benefits of the program, we have, with, with, which have been many, um, and the widespread support for, for beneficiaries like me. And there has been widespread support. Uh, most polls show that uh, two-thirds of Americans supporting allow, uh, allowing uh, DACA recipients to, to stay in this country. So, Carrie Carranza with uh, Church World Services, your thoughts? I definitely agree with Carlos. I think it was irresponsible to pull the rug out from these uh, young undocumented people. Uh, if if Congress doesn't deliver something, a permanent solution in six months, it's not just that DACA is gone. These people now become vulnerable to deportation, and they'll be deported to a place that they don't know. They've grown up here since a young age. This is their home, and it would just cause uh, an extreme amount of stress. Uh, so I think it was just very irresponsible and definitely did not uh, follow the, the promises he made to deal with DACA recipients with heart. Well, and we're going to talk about that, too. Is you mentioned the six months. Where it stands right now, the Trump administration announced earlier this week it was ending the program within six months, but the president also turned it over to Congress to maybe come up with a solution. So that's what we'll be referring to. Jill Family, uh, looking at this from a legal point of view disappointing. Um, I think that this was purely a political decision that was sort of couched in legal terms. Um, First, let me explain that there was this artificial September 5th deadline that actually had been created by a bunch of attorneys general who had threatened to sue the Trump administration. Exactly. If they didn't end DACA by September 5th. So there was no deadline, really, that um, the Trump administration had to do anything about this. Um, And so, you know, Trump sort of adopted that false deadline. And then, um, Attorney General Sessions argued that, you know, they had to end DACA because it was unlawful. And, you know, I just 
respectfully disagree with that legal conclusion. I helped draft a letter that over 100 law professors signed that argued that DACA is legal and that it should have been defended in court. All right, so let's talk about that since uh, you, you jumped to the political and also the legal uh, part of this. Uh, as Carlos had mentioned, that the uh, you know, the president had campaigned as a candidate saying, I mean, we've heard over the last week or so, many sound bites from the campaign where he said, well, I'm going to end DACA right off the bat, would get big cheers from uh, the, the people at the rallies, that kind of thing. So he was elected even after making that promise. Mm -hmm. He claims that uh, what former President Obama did was unconstitutional because it was done by an, uh, an executive order rather than legislatively. Talk about that aspect, if you would. Sure. So it actually wasn't an executive order. It was just um, executive action. So DACA was actually created by a memo, a, a memorandum from the then Secretary of Homeland Security. And really all it is is an exercise of prosecutorial discretion. So the Secretary of Homeland Security said to, you know, the rest of the immigration agency, you know, we've got to prioritize who um, is our, are our priorities for removal. And, you know, we think that people that meet these characteristics um, should not be priorities for removal. And so we're putting them at the bottom of the list and we're going to give them something called deferred action, which has existed in immigration law for for decades. I mean, this is not a DACA-specific thing. And deferred action is a way for um, the Immigration Enforcement Agency to signal to someone you're a low priority. And um, so for, for me, this DACA is just another kind of prosecutorial discretion, something that's been done in immigration law, you know, since the beginning of immigration law. And um, there's no there's no reason not to defend it in court. Okay, but let me, and here are the buts. Sure. Uh, it's still, even if it was not uh, an executive order and it was prosecutorial uh, discretion, it was not done legislatively. The right. Congress did not <clears throat> act upon it. I mean, for years now, for 20 years at least, we've been hearing this is a federal issue. The Congress of the United mm -hmm. States has to do something, and they haven't. Well, and I think it's important to distinguish between what Congress could do and what the president could do. So DACA, because it was created by a memorandum, um, is not a legal immigration status. And so I think the situation that we've all now found ourselves in just proves um, that what the president was doing through DACA was not doing the same thing that Congress could do. So if Congress amends the Immigration and Nationality Act um, to allow someone uh, who qualifies for DACA to be put on a path to a legal status, that's a permanent legal status that um, could not be rescinded by a, someone like Attorney General Sessions just standing up one day and saying, now it's rescinded. The only way you could rescind it would be by passing another statute. So I know it sounds like a technical legal distinction, but it's actually very important. And that's what makes DACA legal is that um, it didn't do the same thing that a statute could do. So. Carlos, just what uh, Professor Family uh, described, and we'll just take the words literally. Uh, basically, just what that describes is a prosecutor's discretion of whether they would want to prosecute uh, you or someone else for being in this country illegally. I mean, we're talking about human beings. We're talking about you. We're talking about your future. future. How does it make it make you feel when you hear that? At a prosecutor's discretion, you could be, uh, the, you know, they may pursue a case to have you deported. Um, the uncertainty is is real. Um, so, like I said, like we always knew DACA was not going to be a permanent. We were hoping the Congress was going to act. But in light of congressional gridlock, DACA was a great choice. It was the only choice, really, that I had to live uh, resemblance of a normal life in this country. Um, I think a lot of people that support repealing it they don't really understand what it did. It's basically protection for deportation for two years and a work permit. It doesn't qualify us for any type of public benefits. 
whatsoever and we are not eligible like like professor family mentioned to apply for any type of legal status or long-term legal status so you know this is a predicament that i've been now for the past 15 years and and that i want a permanent solution to and that's why i urge congress to act in the next six months before people start losing their protections that are subject to deportation like me Okay, so tell us your story. You came to this country, as I mentioned, at the age of 11 from the Dominican Republic mm-hmm. with your mother. Uh, talk a little bit about why yeah. uh, your your family came here and what you've been doing since. Yes, so um, the decision to immigrate uh, happened three years after my father passed away. You know, my mother had, as someone that had very little uh, formal education in the Dominican Republic, a very hard time uh, with a deteriorating economy uh, to support us. You know, she had two young children to support, um, and she did what she could. She went back to trade school. She started her own business in the Dominican Republic, selling pastries and, and you know, anything that she could from our home. But it was just not enough. And, you know, contrary to popular belief, you know, immigration is a very tough decision to make. You know, you're talking about coming to a country that you don't know much about, that you don't speak the language. Um, but, you know, she did what I think any parent would want to do, and that is... Uh, try to provide better opportunities for their, their children, right? She, she has sacrificed her, her own dreams and in many cases her health working in this country so that I can live my life and, and be here in front of you uh, talking about this. So, you know, thanks to Doc, I've been able to finish my education. I've been able to, uh, you know, complete two masters abroad and, and finally work and pay uh, taxes, right? And, you know, I paid about a third of my income in taxes. And I'm, and I'm happy to do that because I know that's what it takes to, you know, to fund public schools and, and, and make sure seniors get their benefits of Social Security. You know, so, um, you know, for someone to argue that, you know, my presence in this country is, is a negative, you know, it's very offensive, especially to, you know, everything that I've done already in this country and I continue to do. So you've been, you said that this is something that has weighed on you for the 15 years mm-hmm. that uh, you have lived here in the United States. Tell me about that. I mean, as a child, you even thought about it or just as as you were getting older? So there's always uncertainty, right? As a child, my main concern was how do I get into college? The main reason we came here was so we can get uh, an education. Um, So that was my main concern. Once I I was able to go to college, uh, the the decision was or the uncertainty was what do I do after I graduate without a work permit? Is my degree or my degrees, are they just going to be papers on the wall? Um, which is not the reason why I got them in the first place, right? It's to contribute to society. What was your major? So I did political science at Amherst College uh, as an undergrad, and, and I got one in political economy, another one in global affairs, um, one from the University of Cambridge and the other one from Tsinghua University in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about the church world services. Gary, um, church world services has worked with immigrants. I... Well, let me ask you, legal and undocumented over the years, correct? Correct. Okay. So talk about uh, the things that you've done with so-called dreamers over the years. Yes. So Church World Service has a legal services program. We have accredited representatives from the Department of Justice. And so we... um, prepare legal forms and offer representation, and that includes DACA recipients. Um, I was with Church World Service in 2012 when DACA was announced, and uh, I remember, you know, learning all about it, getting ready to represent people, uh, getting the word out in the community that this was now going to be an option, and then, of course, filing those papers for DACA recipients. Uh, Recently, as we started to hear that the beneficiaries of this program were under threat, um, one of my coworkers, Audrey Lopez, who is also a uh, DACA recipient and I decided to uh, start to bring uh, the clients that we represent that uh, fall under this program together to strategize about how they can uh, just be involved in their future and uh, you know advocate for themselves because like Carlos said we heard the campaign promises we heard the rhetoric we uh, were able to kind of see what would be coming if he was elected so we figured it was time to organize um, and we were proactive about that so uh, since January of 2016 uh, we've been coordinating meetings with DREAMers in Lancaster County. We meet about once a month, and our four goals are uh, to advocate for uh, just immigration policies, to give educational resources, legal resources, and then to also uh, offer support and connection so that they have uh, 
you know, support in these tough times with people who understand what they're going through. Talk more about this. There's a lot to talk about. And if you have questions or comments, give us a call or send an email, too. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome back to Smart Talk. This portion of the program, we're talking about uh, the end, the planned end, anyway, of the DACA program uh, here in uh, the United States. And uh, with us today is Jill Family. She's a Widener University Commonwealth Law Professor of Law and Government. She specializes in immigration and DACA law. Carlos Adolfo Gonzalez is a DACA, a DACA participant and an advocacy coordinator with the Pennsylvania Immigration and Citizenship Coalition. And Carrie Carranza, legal immigration counselor and pro program advocate with Church World Services in Lancaster. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that phone number 1-800-729-7532. Carlos, let me bring this up to you, and actually all three of you can uh, weigh in on this. But I heard uh, one of, uh, on NPR this week, and I've heard this before, uh, a member of Congress who supported the the president's move to end the DACA program. And I'm just going to paraphrase here. What uh, that congressman said is that uh, we are a nation of laws. If you don't follow the law, then why have the laws to begin with? And the law said that uh, people like you were brought to this country illegally and there was no guarantee that you could stay. How do you respond to that? Um, that's, I, I see what, where they're coming from. Um, but, but just because it's the law doesn't make it the right thing. Uh, there's a difference between justice and, and um, the legality behind what we have right now. And, you know, what we need to do is, is change what what is in place right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just adding on to that, I mean, one thing is, is that, you know, rule of law includes the ability to change the law. And so we could have Congress um, pass something like the DREAM Act. Um, you know, we could have... Congress reconsider that in immigration law generally, there's really no proportionality. And so the only quote unquote punishment that there is, is removal. And if you think, you know, in any other system, you know, you don't get 25 years in jail for a speeding ticket, right? And so maybe it's time to think about what our law is actually saying. And and as Carlos says, is it just, is is it proportional? The other thing I wanna point out is that from my perspective, DACA actually um, upheld values of the rule of law because it brought transparency and consistency to the system of prosecutorial discretion in immigration law. So remember, prosecutorial discretion has been around for decades, and before DACA, it was never really clear who was eligible for it. There were no rules. There was no rule for um, DACA, and so it was pretty much up to individuals to ask for prosecutorial discretion, but there was no sort of guidelines about you know, when the government might grant it, when they might not grant it. And so through DACA, the Obama administration said, you know, here are some guidelines, right? Here are some policies that we intend to follow. You know, and this is why it ha- it is such a political issue, because just what you described, Professor Family, is you know, here's a young man who for 15 years of his life has wondered whether, you know, someone's going to knock on the door the next day and say, hey, you're going back to the Dominican Republic. At the same time, you have people uh, like the congressman I just described who said that, uh, hey, the the law says he was brought into this country illegally and we have no, because we don't have a law, uh, you know, the the option, the only option is to deport that person. So what it points out is the need for the Congress to act. 
Yeah, and I think in immigration law, too, there's lots of times when the legality doesn't uh, exactly correspond with our morals as a nation. I mean, we had things like the Chinese Exclusion Act, Operation Weckback, where they deported American citizens back to Mexico. There's lots of times where what immigration, what happens in immigration isn't exactly what is right. And so I think it does take uh, stepping back and uh, broadening your perspective to understand that this system it has a lot of flaws in it that don't provide a path to citizenship for people. And as she said, if they, if Congress does something to change it and these people have a path, then all of a sudden they become the good immigrants, so to say, uh, of what you know opponents of DACA would all of a sudden say, oh, well, now they're good. Now we like them. Well, nothing has changed in Carlos as a person between now and, say, this time next year other than Congress's actions. And I just want to say, um, you know, I want to follow the law. Just give me a path to follow, and, I, and I'll get in line, like people say. Well, see, um, this, this was my point, is that there, right now there's no path to follow. Of course, of course. And, and, you know, I've been following the law. My only civil crime, if you want to put it that way, was, you know, that I overstayed my visa as a child. And children don't have agency, um, whether or not, you know, they, they make a conscious decision to, to follow a law or not. Um, you know, since I've been here, all I've done is contribute to this country. And, and Jill, let me ask you about this, too. Part of the rules is that uh, those who are DACA recipients, that no felonies, right. th- that they, in fact, if you look at the statistics that, uh, I, I don't know, maybe you know the statistics a little bit better, but uh, uh, that uh, for the most part, there are no crimes committed. Uh, that they are going to school, they are working. Oh yes, in huge in huge majorities, um, highly productive members of society, exactly the kind of people you want to come to your country and contribute. Um, yes, you cannot get DACA if you have um, committed a significant misdemeanor um, or anything stronger than that, or even multiple misdemeanors. Um, so they are subject to criminal background checks. They give their fingerprints. They come forward. They give all their information. Um, and so, you know, in terms of policy, these are, you know, people who there's no reason not to want them in your country. All right, so let's talk about uh, what the president has said and what the Congress will do. Carlos, do you have confidence that uh, the Congress will come up with something within the next six months that would allow you and uh, other DACA DACA recipients to stay in this country? I mean, that's hard to say given the recent (laughs) history in the Congress and inactivity. Uh, But I am hopeful and I'm energized, not only by, you know, the the comments made by some in the Republican leadership and and people like Lindsey Graham and, and Paul Ryan, um, but also the energy that people like me have been putting in, into advocating, educating the American public that I know supports a, a, a comprehensive and permanent solution to this to this issue for me. I want to play something here that uh, President Trump uh, has said about uh, about DACA recipients. I have a great heart for the folks we're talking about, a great love for them. And people think in terms of children, but they're really young adults. Uh, I have a love for these people, and hopefully now Congress will be able to help them and do it properly. Okay, you you hear that, and of course you juxtapose it against uh, what was said in the campaign last year. But that sounds like, okay, he's telling the Congress, do something here to, to be able to keep DACA recipients here. <laughs> Is that mixed signals to you, or what do you take from that? I say absolutely. I saw something on Twitter that made me laugh. It said, oh, he loves dreamers. Imagine if he hated them. <laughs> I mean, Good point. He's uh, really subjecting them to a lot of risk here. I mean, Congress has, uh, the DREAM Act has been introduced in one way or another for uh, 16 years now. Another thing on Twitter that made me laugh is someone said tw- uh, the DREAM Act is old enough to apply for DACA <laughs> themselves. So, you know, Congress has time and time again failed this community, um, and they failed to uh, work together to get something done on both sides of the aisle. So I think what the challenge will be to get this passed is a clean bill that uh, that focuses on the heart of the issue, and that alone, because this is people's lives. I mean, there's no room at this time, there's six months, there's no room for political games or political chess on, you know, the board of Dreamers' lives uh, to attach other things that aren't relevant to the the heart of the issue. So I think one concern that we have are attaching things like um, 
funding for the border wall or uh, enforcement, those things don't have to do with DACA recipients. DACA recipients have to have been here since June 15th of 2007. They have to prove that they've been here. So it's not attracting new immigrants. No one's saying, oh, DACA, DREAM Act, I'm going to go get that. I'm going to go across the border tomorrow to get that. They do not qualify for that. You have to have already been here for 10 years and prove that with evidence from your school records, your work records, your bank statements, your taxes. You have to show that you've been here. So I think they need to focus on what the issue is because if they get into other things, that's where they start to have disagreements and nothing gets done. And with DACA and the Dreamers, that's where they do agree and where they have the chance to actually pass something. And I think the president said something that's that's very true. Um, I think that the image of a a particular Dreamer is is a child. And, you know, we've been at this now for 15 years. So many of us are not children anymore. We're in our 20s. You know, some of us have graduated college. We're working. Um, and we have financial obligations. You know, I got my first car recently, uh, my, my first apartment, um, <clears throat> 2012 uh, Mazda SP. Okay. All right. <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that in there. Go ahead. Um, very, uh, yeah, I'm happy with it. But I mean, I'm worried about what if I lose my job? What, how am I going to pay for that loan? You know, that's an, that's an obligation that I, that I enter into and that I want to see through. Um, you know, so, so let's, let's not be mistaken. This is the, the fight for my for my future and that's why i'm here talking to you all and i think it's very important to to not just say congress but to point out specific congressmen uh, and that's why i want to urge my congressman lois mucker from lancaster to you know step up like he has done in the past he was a, a co-sponsor of or he introduced the pennsylvania dream act right when he was in state senate of course Pennsylvania. Yeah. um and now we, we're calling on him to you know to step up again for us and and sponsor the, the the bipartisan dream act already in the congress that will provide a permanent path to citizenship for people like me congressman smucker did introduce that one in the pennsylvania senate uh, the dream act but at the same time uh, his response to what the president announced this week is he thinks it's the right move because it will allow Congress over the six mo- next six months to look at this. So it's not but, exactly support, but it's not saying no either. But So exactly. So now that th- that is the approach you want to take, be involved in the negotiations. Um, you know, look at the bill at least or, and, and co-sponsor it because it's a good bill. You know, it's not amnesty. There will be a process for me to follow. Um, under the current DREAM Act, I will be 41 by the time I, I'm able to take the oath uh, to become an American citizen. You know, is, isn't that punishment enough? <laughs> Let's take a phone call from Mary in Camp Hill. Mary, you're on the air. Yes, I have been working with the undocumented for 16 years. Uh, by myself with the help of other people that say, I'll help these children. I make sure they have clothing. I fight racial issues. And many of them have moved on to college. One of them is at the Fashion Institute, a senior concerned now about DACA. So 12 of those children I have helped to get into the DACA program. And now they're all running scared, and it's sad. It is sad that I live in a country that would look at these kids that had biometrics, which means fingerprints, DNA, extreme amount of paperwork that they had to fill out, $480 that they spent on that, which was money that was hard-earned. And now they want to remove it, and it's a sad day. Hey, Mary, thank you very much for your call. I'm sure that uh, you agree with uh, the sentiment uh, that that Mary had. Yeah, and I, you know, I want to add. I'm, you know, I'm a law professor, so I, you know, talk about law, and it sounds very sort of sterile <laughs> and that kind of thing. But um, I'm teaching immigration law this semester, and you know, we have been talking about these issues, and and even as lawyers, um, you know, thinking about just the human aspect of this. I mean, the idea that you know you were talking about that played that clip of President Trump. I mean, it's so confusing. And I can't even imagine, you know, for someone in Carlos's position. And to me, it just seems, you know, antithetical to what how America is supposed to be, you know, to to not be sure of the law and how it's going to apply to you and to to be using the law to create such anxiety and uncertainty in people, you know, who all they want to do is contribute and be a part of our society. Go ahead, Carlson. I I just want to add to, um, you know, the the fact that a lot of this, too, has focused on, oh, we're children and and we came here because our parents brought us. Um, What I don't want to see is a dream act that, like Carrie said, uh, exonerates me at the expense of my mother. And, you know, I think that is something very American about you know, the spirit of undocumented people. You know, not everyone, um, 
you know, decides to come here to the United States, faced with the same circumstances that she did. Um, so, you know, so I admire her foresight, her, bra her bravery, um, you know, and I think that resembles a lot of what people's ancestors that came here from Europe in, you know, the turn of the century, um, you know, that, that same type of spirit. But let me just say, and here's the but that uh, you will hear from some people, mm -hmm. is that to make that comparison, that those people who came here from Europe did it in a legal way. So, and I think that ignores the fact that the immigration system has changed drastically. You know, over 25 million people came through Ellis Island. Only 1% was denied. If you apply the same standards that we have right now in immigration law to those people, the majority of Americans' ancestors would not be here in the U.S., you know, so in, inherently in American immigration, we want people who want to work hard, right? Who, who come here with a spirit of wanting to make this country better. It, it wasn't required for them to have master's degrees or, or, or an Olympic medal or Nobel Peace Prize for them to get into this country. That's not how this country was was made. Let's take a phone call from Bill and Carlisle. Bill, you're on the air. Thank you. I tried to bring relatives over some forty years ago. I had jobs guaranteed for them. They would not have been any burden on the state because all their bills would have been paid for by me until they got on their feet. I never was able to bring them over here. A few years ago, I tried to bring my mother-in-law, who was 86 at the time, and dying. It, we did all the right things. Well, she died before we could get her over here because the, the, the legal immigration process takes forever. And I'm telling you about, pe these are people that lived in, under horrible circumstances in Ceausescu's Romania. It just irks the living daylights out of me that some groups seem to have so much preference. And other, I'll tell you another one, too, that infuriates me. People who, who worked with our troops as translators and even fought with our troops in Afghanistan and Iraq, you realize there's something in the neighborhood of 15,000 of them, and they, they, the men that they, they fought with them are trying to get them visas to come here. They can't get them. And, and some of those people, their families are getting killed. So you, They're under constant death threat. So what and you, it just seems like other people can just walk across the border and everything's okay. I mean, I have, no, I have nothing against Carlos and other people like him. I hope he can stay. I hope he can. But by God, it's, Thank we you. better straighten out this immigration system because it's out of hand. And it should be fair for everybody, not just people with, with Spanish surnames. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, you know, he, he's making a point that there are a lot of people who have made, I mean, that... Uh, I, the the point, you know, not the one about uh, the Spanish surnames and that kind mm -hmm. of thing, but there being preferences, but that uh, the immigration system is broke. Uh, absolutely. I think the main message from that is that, that the immigration system is broken and has been broken for many decades, and we need a comprehensive solution to it. Uh, that's nothing new. We know, we know that it's broken. Mm -hmm. Go Something ahead, what do like to add as well is that it's not just people who are here that are fed up with the way the system is failing people. It's not just failing immigrants. It's failing U.S. citizens who have uh, family members that they want to take. Um, so <clears throat> something that I noticed he said is, uh, you know, that people can just cross the border and, and come in. That's that's not really true. Um, but also another thing is that when we're talking about DACA specifically, it's not just people who cross the border. It's not even just people who overstayed their visa. I mean, we have one dreamer in our group who the reason that she's in the situation she is is because the person who was filing for her, her dad, passed away in the middle of the process and left her here in an extremely vulnerable situation. And she's from a country where she can't go back to because they have a dictator who has said, anyone who's left, we no longer recognize you as a citizen. So now she's a stateless person. There are a myriad of reasons that someone might find themselves in this situation. And it's I think dangerous to paint all undocumented people with a broad brush because yeah. there are tons of factors and it's very convoluted to know why someone ends up in this situation. We only have a minute or so left. Carlos, if you had to go back to the Dominican Republic, what would you think? Would you, uh, I mean, would you know the country? Would you, um, do you have relatives? So obviously it, it, the, the interesting thing is like, I don't, to some Americans I'm not American enough, to Dominicans I'm not Dominican enough, so I'm always in this limbo. Um, you know, I think at this point in my life, I'm one of the privileged few that I don't think I would, you know, my my life economically wouldn't fall apart. Um, but, you know, people ignore the fact that I want to stay here. You know, it's not about economics anymore for me. It's about 
you know, being part of this country because this is where I grew up. This is where I, you know, the country that I, that I love. Um, you know, so that's what I'm asking for. It's a path to stay here long term. Um, you know, like I said, I'm one of the lucky few, but there are many who, who struggle um, in this country under these circumstances. I want to thank all three of you for being with us today. And uh, uh, we'll follow you in the next six months. Obviously, this is going to be something that we're going to hear a lot about. And uh, I, am, I want to talk to some members of Congress about, and including Congressman Smucker, about their thoughts on, uh, on, on what they think about DACA. Again, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you us. so much. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Right now, the National Hurricane Center is reporting that Hurricane Irma remains a dangerous and life-threatening Category 5 storm with winds of 175 miles per hour. Look at the size of this storm. It is wider than our entire state and could cause major life-threatening impacts from coast to coast. Regardless of which coast you live on, be prepared to evacuate. Floridians on the West Coast cannot be complacent. Remember, Hurricane Andrew is one of the worst storms in the history of our state. This is much worse and more devastating on its current path. That is Florida Governor Rick Scott. As Hurricane Irma bears down on the U.S. this weekend, the question rises as to whether the country is prepared for disasters like Irma or Hurricane Harvey that flooded Texas and the Gulf Coast two weeks ago. Robert Wheelersburg worked with the Federal Emergency Management Agency. He was an intelligence officer in the U.S. Army and now teaches at Elizabethtown College, including a course on emergency operations in disaster response. Dr. Wheelersburg, thanks for being with us again. Thanks, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, so when we talk about disaster preparedness, I mean, we've been on this, we've known now for a few days, Mm -hmm. maybe even longer than a week, that Irma was a monster storm, and we had a general idea of its path, and knew that it was going to make a turn after Cuba and turn up toward the United States. So it sounds as if there is preparation going on. Mm -hmm. When you see that, as someone who has been involved in disaster preparation, are we prepared? Well, I mean, um, all we have to do is look at Harvey. I I think it's maybe too early to tell if we're prepared uh, for Irma or not because uh, it hasn't hit yet and people are still in the path of danger. But if we look at Harvey, which recently happened, and of course, I think we're up to about 70 deaths there, we, uh, Texas was not prepared. When you say, are we prepared, uh, there are three levels of that, local, state, and federal governments. And... Um, we weren't prepared for that uh, at the state level, especially. Uh, there's a lot no, of. Why criti- do you say that? Why do you well, say there's that? a lot of criticism of the governor right now in the state because he uh, minimized um, uh, the emergency uh, preparedness. Um, the uh, he wasn't responsible for all of it, but uh, Houston, for example, uh, ignored zoning laws and uh, federal uh, legislation to uh, pre- or federal statutes to prevent building in flood zones. And they had urban sprawl. Um, the oil industry apparently was a heavy contributor to his campaign, and that was the emphasis here: is is getting uh, the drilling going and and reinvigorating uh, that um, uh, that industry. Now, what happens is, of course, is um, you have to request help all the way up the chain. So, local governments, mayors, etc., uh, need to request uh, when they're um, looking for disaster assistance, they have to request um, from the state to get higher level support. And then the governor has to go directly to the president. And the president is the one that declares a federal emergency. So what ends up happening is um, it's been 12 years since um, Hurricane Wilma hit. Um, uh, That that was uh, 2005, I believe. That's a long time. And what happens in the meantime is people forget how devastating these things can be, and often emergency management gets put on the back burner. Um, Mark Rub- Senator Mark Rubio this morning was talking about Hurricane Andrew and how it was uh, FEMA, right? FEMA was a dumping ground under George the uh, First for uh, poor, uh, for uh, po- you know politicians, people that funded him. That continued under uh, George the uh, Second, where. Uh, 
Michael Brown uh, was the FEMA director. His experience was as a lawyer, and I think he was the legal senior legal counsel of the American Arabian uh, Stallion organization. No emergency management uh, at all. So people forget about uh, the extent extent of these uh, uh, disasters. They don't put the money in. Uh, we're supposed to have as individuals three months of our salary for emergency. Do you have three months no, salary? No, no. I don't either. So every three days. Yeah. So funding gets uh, put aside, um, and you know we're just not ready. And what happens then is uh, something like this comes in, like Harvey, and then they go to the federal government. And even a red state uh, like Texas that doesn't want government interference, they're more than happy to go and ask for federal assistance after that occurs. All right. A, f- a few things there. You were talking about uh, the governor of, mm-hmm. of, of Texas. But Houston, um, traditionally, in fact, they almost seem proud of not having zoning laws. Right. So it wasn't just this governor. I no. Mean, th- this existed well before no, that's this right. governor. Mm-hmm. So what didn't he do? I mean, he couldn't change that there were zoning laws overnight. No. Uh, but as far as how the city of Houston, southeastern Texas, what specifically didn't they do to prepare? Well, I don't think they had the the uh, the money in place. And, you know, it's like Katrina. Uh, the disaster there was not caused by the emergency response. It was caused by the levy system and that right. sort of thing. So he could have come in. I don't mean to blame him, but that's he's getting a lot of attention now. But um, I think uh, he could have come in and said, we got to fix this somehow. But once you build a house, uh, whether it's zoned or not, you know, you have a problem. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't want to focus on that so much. But it looks like we're a little better prepared than Andrew. And what happened there was, again, uh, we had a president uh, who um, believed that the federal government should be the last response. And he actually visited Andrew before or visited uh, Florida before Andrew hit and said, if you need any help, uh, we're here. Uh, And then got on his Air Force One and went home. Well, uh, you know, and then it was too late by the time Andrew hit. And uh, some I believe I've read some things that George lost the uh, election uh, because of Florida. Um, because of the Andrew response. And you're talking about uh, George Bush. Yeah, George uh, H- the first. H.W. Yeah. Bush. Right. Uh, in 1992, uh, after Andrew, and by the way, if you have seen that uh, graphic of Irma side by side from space with Andrew, Andrew was devastating to, to Florida in 1992. Yes. yes. This storm is twice its size. I mm-hmm. mean, this is a huge storm. Right. But from what we're hearing, and one of the things that uh, came about as a result of Andrew is that uh, supposedly the building codes were yes. were strengthened and that uh, flood control and disaster would be something that they were built, you know, buildings were, were, were constructed yes, differently. Right. Mm-hmm. But are you saying that still that is not enough? Well, again, you have to have equipment prepositioned. You have to have funding. You have to have the right people in place. It looks like maybe uh, they do now. Um, zoning laws are very important uh, for disaster uh preparedness. Uh, I come from the southeastern portion of Ohio, which is actually Appalachia, and we have a lot of little hills with uh, um, creeks and that sort of thing in it, and flooding. Just like Pennsylvania, flooding is the biggest uh, uh, threat for natural disasters. Well, growing up, I mean, you know, I knew people who's had it lived in a trailer or a shack and their granddaddy had been flooded out they'd been flooded out their kids were going to get flooded out and fema just kept rebuilding now you get one rebuild and it has to be according to code so that should help some although if you look at uh the dutch uh antilles the Netherlands antilles um they had four of their strongest uh, buildings destroyed by uh ermine and they were all up to the code etc so we just don't know the power of these things um governor scott in florida has ordered mass evacuation mm-hmm. i have seen numbers anywhere from six hundred thousand to a million people being evacuated uh, what does that say to you well i mean you got to get out of there uh, there's no way uh that you can stay in place for a, a category five or i guess right now it's right on the edge and right. they're not sure if it's going to 
going to strengthen or not. But you got to get out. And, you know, I mean, that, again, goes against um, American. I'm not going to say red or blue. It goes kind of against an American value of rugged individualism. Uh, make it, you know, no matter what. If we go back to Mount St. Helens, which, is, of course, is another type of uh, a natural disaster, you may remember that guy. I think his name was Harry uh, Andrew Truman or something. He was like 84, and the press really gave him a lot of attention because he says, I'm not leaving, and the state allowed him to stay. He was probably vaporized by that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the question is, is that a good thing to do or not? But evacuation is important to get people out, but you have to follow up on it and get people out. Um, it's too late once the storm starts. Uh, as you know, first responders don't do anything during the storm, and they shouldn't. Uh, so it's too late. But once you get all those people on the road, once you get uh, the airports jammed and flights uh, uh, canceled, it's tough, and the last thing you want to do is get caught on the road uh, not moving in a storm because you end up like I-80, uh, what, two, three years ago when they had the ice storm. 81, actually. 81, yeah. and yeah. those people were just trapped up there, and, uh, you know, that's that's the problem. you got no protection in a vehicle. Then mm-hmm. You run out of gas uh, and more traffic jams, et cetera. So evacuation is the key, but I think you do it as quickly as you can. The mm-hmm. problem is, are people going to do it? Are they going to miss a week of work? Uh, because they think the hurricane's going to hit there, and then it doesn't. A couple things. Heard a woman this morning on NPR who had a, a, a baby mm-hmm. and said, we're gonna, we're, we have enough food, water, everything, we're, we're sticking it out. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, hey, we, we everyone has their own situation, make yes. their own decisions. Right. But uh, after what you're saying, I don't know whether uh, you know a lot of people would agree with her or not. The other thing is, one of the reasons you're on today, we had originally scheduled you to be on uh, our Monday mm-hmm. program, yeah. is our guest was scheduled scheduled to appear, it's an author of a book, mm-hmm. scheduled to appear in Harrisburg. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to talk to him about his book. He lives in Boca Raton, outside oh, yes. of Miami, mm-hmm. and there are no flights out, mm-hmm. uh, even as of yesterday. Mm. So we've had to postpone that. That's going to happen sometime in October, right. when he's going to be here in Harrisburg. But so firsthand, you know, we experienced it here. That you know, when I, I talked to this gentleman the other day, he said that uh, he was looking forward to making his appearance here in Central Pennsylvania because it got him away from the hurricane. Right. Sure. Now he's stuck. Right. No, that's true. And I think the woman you're talking about actually has two children. Uh, uh, 18 months and some uh, another younger one, I think. Uh, and her her statement was that this house survived Andrew, so we'll be okay. But again, you just can't mess with nature. You don't know what the uh, the parameters are. And uh, I think uh, Andrew was stronger wind wise, but as you said, Irma was a lot larger. Right. You got to get out. Okay, so as far as evacuation is mm-hmm. one tool, mm-hmm. we also talked about uh, you know building codes, right. zoning, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. What else? How else do does an area prepare for a natural disaster like this? Well, you really you know we are helpless when it comes to nature like this. Um, as as you know, I, I work a lot on Iceland and volcanoes up there. You can't do anything. You just have to prepare by getting people out of the way to start and then evacuating. Um, There's two parts to a disaster um, uh, response. Uh, One is uh, response, the second is recovery. And um, training, 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 uh, qualified people, uh, money, lots of money, but again, it's easy to raid the emergency management. Um, And, you know, if you're an emergency management director of a state or of a county, you're usually an appointed person and you're at the mercy of the elected uh, governor or mayor or president. And you can only fight so much without um, maybe being let go. So, um, it, you know, the the recovery part is not so much of a problem. Uh, my guess is there are still FEMA offices in Katrina, you know, doing Katrina stuff. And um, the the response is the big thing. But, you know, once, once the storm hits, uh, it's too late to do anything um, except rescue people once it's over. Yeah, so my big takeaway from, uh, you know, talking with you this morning is that 
yes, we're prepared to a degree, but we don't take it seriously enough that uh, it's almost like uh, that, that person, mm-hmm. that individual has that, that mindset that, oh, nothing bad will ever happen to me. Right. That we roll the dice. That's right. And one of the problems is, again, you know, what was it, 12 years, 14 years, 15 years since uh, the last hurricane hit uh, the continental U.S.? That's a long time. People have institutional you know, memories that get lost. That's what, uh, if it's 12 years, that's three presidential terms. Um, you know, so politicians, you know, they, I, I believe many of them are dedicated, but they also want to get reelected. And um, the way to do that is to take care of immediate needs rather than something that could happen and may never happen. Um, I think one of the things that hurt very much uh, the the um, preparedness is moving FEMA under under Homeland Security. Structurally, that's been studied. Of course, uh, former Governor Ridge was the first mm-hmm. uh, uh, director or secretary, I think. Uh, that wasn't so much of a problem. But then Chertoff came in after 9-11, um, and he was a prosecutor. And so what happened? happened there was, uh, during Katrina, he emphasized uh, human-made disasters, especially terrorism, kind of that, you know, prosecutorial mentality, which is not a negative thing. Uh, FEMA was subordinated to that. So when they went and, you know, requested money for, you know, hurricanes or whatever, uh, requested preparedness, that was kind of put under the table. And again, that was what was in the public's mind, 9-11 at that time. We really thought preparedness was important. We have had some um, some uh, false uh, um, situations. Uh, I was involved in Y2K preparation. Mm-hmm. What a uh, scam that was. <laughs> uh, I actually knew an IBM uh, vice president who was in charge of a division who went out and uh, p- got paid to fix their own computer's Y2K problems. And... Nothing ever happened from that. I mean, it was really incredible. <laughs> yeah. You have been involved in a number of things. Yes. We only have about a minute yeah, left. That's in right. fact, you know, we have the Ken Burns, uh, the Vietnam War. So yes. You were involved correct. in uh, the evacuation of Saigon, right? That's correct, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any comparison there whatsoever? Well, I will tell you this, and again, this is a human story. Um, we, um, You have uh, not known the feeling of despair until you've looked into the eyes of someone who's lost everything. You've not known the feeling of hopelessness till you realize you can't do a thing to help them, maybe give them a place to sleep, something to eat, and that's it. So um, there is a comparison. Evacuee, refugee, same thing. Um, You're leaving behind what you've built your whole life. Dr. Robert Wheelersburg is, uh, used to be with the Federal Emergency Management Agency, was an intelligence officer in the U.S. Army, now teaches at Elizabethtown College. Dr. Wheelersburg, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott, and let's keep our fingers crossed. Coming up on Monday, we're going to talk about uh, budgets again, state budgets. Uh, the group of Republicans who got together this week and say they have a budget plan that uh, will not include tax increases, and uh, we'll hear about that coming up on Monday. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health. Its 11 principal investigators and nine nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart.